it's all yours. Right. <laughs> um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm doubly excited. I actually had sh shoulder surgery a week ago. My, my cast is off. Oh, so. I'm sorry. And I just tapped your <laughs> and, and they say he's very compassionate. I don't oh, know. No. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to kind of have a little bit of a, of a triangulation here of talking about how the story came together. And then we'll draw Amina and Issa into the conversation as well. Uh, <laughs> You know, th this, this project started off as kind of a just, uh, as a, a very whimsical half idea. Uh, I had actually pitched a story to the Times about um, a family that was supposed to settle in Indiana, and then Governor Pence thought that this man, woman, and child posed a threat to the safety of the good citizens of Indiana and would not allow them to settle there. I but, remember that. And this man right here, uh, I mean, you could probably even jump in, Chris. I mean, you ended up, they ended up settling here in, in Connecticut. Yeah, the family was in the air uh, on their way from uh, Jordan to JFK, and I got a call from our national organization, and they said, um, Governor Pence is not welcoming Syrian refugees anymore. Will you take them in Connecticut? Well, that's a no-brainer. That's what we do. Of course we will. We'll welcome them here. Our governor had done his homework. He knew that refugees were thoroughly vetted. He had his constitution on his desk. He knows that we don't discriminate against people on the basis of their nationality. So we welcome them in Connecticut. It's a great story, but you didn't do that one, huh? Oh, I tried. I, in fact, it was funny. I, I, they, the family's kids were at Lila Day, uh, which is where my kids were in after school, so I had this idea it would be a great op-ed that the boogeyman that um, Governor Pence didn't want is in school with my kids and doing very well, thank you. <laughs> and I had the idea, I was actually on the foot soccer field because my kid was playing, and I thought, I'm going to pitch this before I talk myself out of it, uh, which has been generally a winning strategy, although some crappy ideas have gotten through more than once. <laughs> and um, they wrote back to me and said, no, thank you, um, which is common. But would you think about doing a, a totally different kind of project, a graphic narrative, uh, basically a true comic about a Syrian refugee family told um, from the kid's perspective, or significantly from the kid's perspective? So I said, that's awesome, but I can't draw. Um, but I could do the reporting, and I could maybe find an illustrator. And I started asking around. Um, locally to see if there was anyone that lived here that was good and several people pointed me um, to Michael who happened to live three blocks away from me. Although we, we've never met. We've never met and if we, yeah, right we, even though our kids kind of maybe crossed on the oh, soccer yeah. field and and we I think went out for coffee and it was very tenuous at that point um, but I basically said to Michael what do you think? And. I think you were, <laughs> you were into it. I mean, you were into mm -hmm. it. And, but we, it was all very tenuous. So then I called. Um, did you want to add anything to that? No, or, you're right. I, at that point, we weren't sure if it was going to gain any, any momentum yet. But it did soon. Afterwards. Yeah. It, it, and we kind of thought, like, well, we'll see what happens. Then I, I, I called Bruce Headlam, our editor at the Times, and I said, what's next? And he said, find a family. So I said, OK. So I called up Chris, and I said, Chris, can you basically find me a family from Syria whose story we can tell? Thinking that he was going to find me a family that was already here. Right. But then this is where really Chris had a kind of stroke of genius that changed the, the, the course of the project. I'll let you kind of tell your idea. Well, you know, um, you're being very generous. Um, that was 2016, right? That was, this, yeah, it's good timing. We should say this is October of 2016. Right. Hillary and Trump are in a race that Hillary is destined to win, or so we all thought. So right. election day seemed like not a big deal right. on the horizon. Yeah. 2016 was um, a high point for Connecticut and for Iris in welcoming the largest number of refugees who've come to this state mm. uh, ever, more than 1,000 were resettled in Connecticut in 2016. Iris resettled 530. So we had families coming, you know, sometimes three or four a week. So it wasn't going to be difficult to find a family. Um, and I always thought that following a family from the moment they arrive would be a very compelling story. 
And now I'm kind of torn. I'm director of a refugee resettlement agency, and my primary uh, responsibility is to resettle refugees, to protect their privacy, to protect their security, because many refugees leave countries um, where they have left family members and friends behind, and if bad people in those countries find out they're in the United States, they might take action against uh, their relatives. So think of the refugee resettlement program a little bit like a, a witness protection mm -hmm. program. You know, we, got, we have to kind of protect the uh, privacy uh, of these refugee families. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, this would be a great story. On the other hand, I'm thinking, yeah, but Chris, you're the director of a refugee agency. You need to, um, you need to protect these refugees. And uh, I don't know these journalists. I don't know what they're going to do with their stories. Are they going to follow the rules? Are they going to get their names out? Could they place this family in danger? Uh, but Jake convinced me that he would be sensitive. He would follow our rules. And I thought, well, you know, there are two families uh, arriving, there are actually three families arriving that day, mm. on election day, night. Um, maybe you can meet them after they've arrived, or when they arrive. I'll check with my staff and see what they think. And, you know, my staff and I, we had a pretty good discussion about it. And I was also thinking, you know, this was a transition for refugee resettlement agencies in the 2016, 2017, definitely now. We're realizing, yes, our job is to resettle refugees, but you know, we also have to educate Americans. And we have to engage Americans in the refugee resettlement process. And if we don't, there'll be no support for refugees. I mean, we shouldn't be resettling refugees in the shadows, under the radar screen. We should be doing it with as much publicity and involvement and public education as possible. So I said, Jake, why don't you come with Michael to the limo stop, uh, the Connecticut limo stop in New Haven, and be there in the evening when these families arrive. But there was a caveat that we kind of agreed on, and it was an important one, which was that whatever we saw, we'd have to circle back with the families a week or two weeks later and basically explain what we're doing and get the closest thing we could to informed consent, saying, this is what we're up to, and do you want to participate? And if you don't, that's okay. And basically be prepared that if the answer was no, that what we witnessed on their arrival was just not usable and we'd have to start over. And we, we both thought that made sense. Um, so on election night, Michael and I went down to the off-track betting place by the, by the gas tank farm. That's where they come in. It's New Haven in all its glory. Um, and we waited for them to arrive. We got there early. We went into the off-track betting building with um, Muhammad, the translator. Oh, yeah, it was actually, um, it, was, uh, it wasn't Muhammad that night. It was, what's his, it was um, young, dashing Iraqi fellow. Oh, Muhammad Kadala. Uh, no, 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 no. I'd never been in there before. It's this gigantic round room filled with TV monitors broadcasting horse races from all around the country, and it couldn't have been um, uh, a, a more different experience from what happened next. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was surreal. Um, anyway, the, the cars come in, the families arrive. So let me just jump in here. Ground rules were they had to hang back, because we, we, we have a rule. We really very rarely allow journalists to be there during this emotional and, 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 and stressful moment when they're getting out of their, the minivans and you know, breathing the air of, of New Haven and wondering about their future. Uh, the last thing I want is for a journalist to stick a microphone in their face and ask them questions. So I said, you have to hang back. These two families were being placed with community groups, a uh, community group in Manchester and a community group, uh, JCAR, the Jewish uh, Community Alliance for Refugee Resettlement, a uh, coalition of five synagogues uh, here in New Haven. So members from those community groups were there in their minivans, excitedly, anxiously waiting for these families to arrive. 
So we watched from afar. I think I might have gone up and said hello to uh, Isa and Amina. There was, I was one of many people, and so was Michael. Um, and, you know, <laughs> kind of said, good luck. <laughs> I hope I will see you again. And then we kind of broke up, and we started heading home. And I remember looking at the phone, and it, the Trump victory was already starting to happen. And I remember waking up and going to bed that night and thinking, oh, this could happen. And then waking up at 2.30 in the morning and getting on the Times website and seeing that headline, Trump triumphs. And I woke up the next morning, and the first thing I did after I got my kids off to school was I started listening to the audio because actually uh, Maher did interview some members of the family. I started listening to it and writing and writing this note to Bruce Headlam saying, our, this, our, editor, at our editor at the Times, yes. And I said, this is a completely different story. This is a story about a family who landed in one country and woke up in another. And I was electrified with the possibility that this story was an important story to tell. And honestly, somewhat selfishly, it was something positive that I felt I could do in an otherwise dark day. Um, I'm going to kind of line this up to Michael, but there's a few things. One last important episode to this story is Chris and I had had a discussion in which I said I need a translator to talk to these families. And Chris very wisely said, get a Syrian translator. Don't assume that just any Arabic mm. speaker will do. And I think I asked you for a suggestion, and, I, and, and Chris said, um, try Mohammed Hafez, right. um, a well-known local architect and artist. And I called up Mohammed Hafez on election day night, and I said, will you please translate for me? And he said, I will. It'll be my pleasure. But Jake, I got to be honest with you. I'm not optimistic that this is going to work. You're not Syrian. You're not Muslim. You don't speak Arabic. They don't know you. And I honestly am not sure why they would trust you, especially coming from Syria, where a journalist is often going to be an agent of the state. It, I'm going to be straight with you. It seems like a long shot to me. So I don't want you to get your hopes up. I mean, he, I was pretty down after the conversation, but I said, well, let's still try, OK? And he said, all right. So I, through Gene Silk, I set up a meeting with Isa and Amina. And we were careful, by the way, not to go with Chris. Because I didn't want them to get the message that Chris's help or Iris's help was contingent on their participation in this article. I mean, the informed consent was sticky the whole way through, but we did our best. So we show up at the house. Amin, I don't remember. You were putting up the curtains that you had brought with you from Jordan. And we got in, and the JCAR people were there. The JCAR people had put signs with the name of every like window, fridge, and every, <laughs> right, remember? <laughs> And um, I was super nervous because I was afraid, I was convinced that they were going to say no. And I sat down and we started talking. I don't know how the ball got rolling about when they left. And within 15 minutes, Isa had kind of gave a little gesture for the younger kids to leave the kitchen. And he proceeded to tell me the story of how during the siege of homes, he was picked up by the security forces, brought to a military prison, and fairly brutally tortured, beaten in his back, by the way of which he still lives with that pain, that chronic pain, every day, a daily reminder of what was done to him. And I was not expecting this at all. I wasn't expecting him to talk to me, let alone share this really painful story. And I turned to Muhammad and I said, is he really wanting to share this? Like, can we just double check on this, triple check on this? And Isa said to me, if getting the truth out there strikes a blow against the regime there and helps in some way, then I will do it. And Isa, you didn't know me. Amina, you did not know me at all. And you welcomed me into your home. I was joking with Amina before this. They had one chair at the start. And they offered it to me. 
you know. And we, and then when we couldn't all, we, so I'm gonna wrap, I got, I'll finish this, I'm about to hand this off to Michael, I'm gonna tell one other quick thing. So I started going every week with Muhammad Hafez and interviewing the family. And then I would use that, I would have them recreate this, their story, because the first episode was all about the exodus from, from, from Jordan to coming to the US. And then I created a script, and I gave it to Michael, and Michael's gonna talk to you all about that, and he has some really lovely visuals to show you how he, he did his end. And then he created a pencil sketch, and then I knew that it was crucial that I fact-check this with the family for several reasons. Reason number one, I'm a white guy who doesn't speak Arabic and is not Muslim, so I assumed that I got things wrong. And two, I felt that they had to see what I was doing. A general rule of journalism is you never share with a source. Um, you never say, here's what I'm gonna write about you, do you like it? Because that would just be opening a can of worms and in theory it would compromise the integrity of the story. But I'm a freelancer so I can do what I want. And I made the call that this family had to see. So I brought over on my laptop a copy of the pencil sketch that Michael had created, 24 frames showing their exodus from Jordan. And I had told myself, if they don't like it or they get scared, I'm gonna walk. I'm not gonna try to give them a squeeze or a sell of like, do it, it's, it's for the good of, no. Like, I, I, I was preparing myself to be like, you may have to walk from this again. And I said it down, I was very nervous. I don't know if you knew how nervous I was. I said it out, Issa looked over it and Muhammad Hafez was translating bit by bit by bit. Issa looked at it like this, said, Jake, the car that took me to the airport in Jordan was a 2011 Mitsubishi Lancer. That is not a 2011 Mitsubishi Lancer. I was like, is that it? He says, yes, the rest looks pretty good. I was like, all right, woohoo! Um, and that was, that was the start of a relationship um, with this family and with Issa's brother, Ibrahim. Uh, the last thing I'll say before I have Michael do his explanation of the visuals is, is a point that's well worth making. We live in an era of profound distrust, a time where differences along Boundaries of race, class, gender, and religion seem to be fissuring, widening, deepening, disturbingly so. I walked into these people's house. I didn't look like them or talk like them. I was Jewish. They were Muslim. They trusted me to tell their story. And I tried really hard to earn that trust and we've known each other for two years, and we did this together. And it's just something worth bearing in mind. So with that, I think I'm gonna hand off, I've explained the journalistic component of this. I'm gonna have Michael, um, give his explanation of how he created the visuals that were so crucial to making this, this story come alive. Would you like to see the Mitsubishi Lancer? Yeah. <laughs> I'll pass it um, to somebody in the audience and you can, you can pass it around. I brought actually the, um, the published versions of the comic and I'll leave them here on the edge of the stage. So please feel free to uh, come up and, and take a look at them. Um, Let's see. Oh, this is, a, this is the final one, which I'll be talking about in a moment. You know, I look forward to the Sunday New York Times, uh, even without this, but when these were appearing, it was the highlight of my, uh, my week. Um, they were just amazing, and uh, I tried to text uh, Jake after each one, let him know how terrific they were. There it is. <laughs> please, please do. Um, I'm going to move forward uh, to January 2017. So at that point, um, uh, Jake and I had a little more confidence that this project was actually going to fly. And we had submitted some preliminary sketches to the Times. 
And um, the first uh, episode was published, I think, on my birthday, January 26th, or maybe the day afterwards. And it was, it's the one that you're um, passing around right now. And um, that was a huge moment for both of us. We were both really excited and exhilarated. I'm going to talk about the process of creating the artwork for the comic. Um, first of all, I should mention I've been working as an editorial illustrator for almost 30 years. And this project was in many ways very similar to um, an illustration assignment. Um, uh, the only difference was that it was um, uh, a comic, so it had text embedded in each of the, the panels. The subject matter was much different than anything I'd ever worked on before. It had a significance and a meaning um, to me, which many of my um, illustration assignments uh, don't in quite the same way. Um, also, because of the nature of working on a comic, the panels have to work together sequentially. Um, uh, and most of my illustration assignments are standalone images, like the one I'm about to show to you. Um, so as an example, um, I'll get an uh, uh, email or a call from an art director at a publication um, asking me if I'm available to do an assignment. It could be on any topic. I've illustrated many different topics. But for instance, America has lost its way. We'll agree on a deadline um, and a fee. Um, the first thing that I would do is create a series of sketches uh, about America has lost its way, keeping in mind um, that it helps if I am able to submit sketches uh, from a, a variety of perspectives. So for instance, the first sketch, which was my personal favorite, um, is um, more optimistic than the final f sketches, number four or five. At least in number one, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and maybe America will find its way. And in four and five, um, I think they're, they're more pessimistic. Uh, I'll submit those for approval um, in the hopes that the art director and ultimately the editor at the publication will choose one. And in this case, they chose, much to my surprise, the sketch that I had spent the, le the least amount of time on. <laughs> um, and here's how it looked um, in redrawn form in the Times op-ed letters column. Um, my original sketch was very quick and, and sloppy, and I needed to, to do a more finished version. So that's essentially um, how um, the comic worked. I would, do, I, would, I would get Jake's script um, after it had gone through an editorial process at the Times. And I would come up with a very quick sketch, um, which I wouldn't show to anybody. Um, this was purely for my benefit. And the purpose of it was to lay in Jake's story, his text, um, so I would know how much room I had left in each of the panels for the visuals. Once I was satisfied with the way it looked, I would do a more completed sketch. And this is the one that I would send to the editors of the Times um, for approval, meaning at this point, um, changes could be made. I don't want to have to make changes once I proceed to final art, because it just takes too much uh, time. Um, I should mention that in the beginning, I was getting the uh, 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 text, uh, the story, usually on a Monday. And the Times wanted the finished comic on Thursday afternoon. Eventually, we realized that Friday morning uh, would be OK, too. So we were working on a very quick deadline, uh, both of us, very fast. Originally, it was being published every week, and then eventually every other week, more or less, from January to October 2016. Um, so I, I want you to take a, a look at um, this panel right here. Jake. Uh, um, looked at the sketch, and he said it looks good, but I'd like to suggest that maybe in this panel here, we put in a taxi driver to give it more of a sense of, of place. Um, so please continue looking at that panel. And you'll see in the final version, I've put the taxi driver in. I've also changed the gesture of the husband as he passes the key uh, to his wife. I think it's a more successful composition. Um, by the way, I work in um, pen and ink or brush and ink on paper traditionally. Um, I scan in the work and I add color in Photoshop. It's the most efficient way for me to work, especially on a very tight deadline. Um, a comic like this, which is eight panels, uh, took me approximately 40, 42 hours of work. Um, and Jake um, uh, figured out that it took him about as much time to do his end of the work, too. So each eight panel comic is something like 80 plus hours of work and probably takes about 90 seconds to read. I just thought I, that you should be aware of that. <laughs> Um, these eight panels um, were, in fact, the top third of the final 20th episode, which is um, on the stage. 
which describes the story of uh, one of the families learning that their home in Syria has been destroyed. Um, they had, I think, harbored hopes that at some point they'd be able to return home, uh, but those hopes now have been dashed. There's, there's no going back. The Times had a requirement that all panels be of the same size and shape um, in order to fit both their print and uh, digital formats. Can you hear me okay back there, by the way? You can? Okay. All right, good. You might need to, oh, you can hear? I got my, I got my mic here, right? But that's only camera. A little louder? A little louder? Why don't I sit down then? Um, in order to work with that requirement, um, I wanted to be able to make the comic visually interesting. So uh, some of the panels you'll notice have borders, some don't. In some cases, the families appear, the, the characters appear in, in silhouette form. And some panels are divided into even smaller panels. I always like the way a strong black looks on the page. It comes from my experience working in printmaking, particularly woodcuts. I want to share some individual panels with you that I really like. There were times when I would read Jake's text, and even before I started sketching, I would get an idea for uh, how I wanted a particular panel to look, and that was the case with this one. In this comic, um, three of the daughters from the other family that lived up in the northern part of the state are going to a summer camp, and none of them know how to swim. And this daughter in particular um, had recently been to a party where there was a pool and she went swimming and nearly drowned and had to be saved. So she's terrified of the water. Here's the sketch. Here's the inked version. And then here's the version with color. And here it is in context with the rest of the comic. I'm particularly happy with the final three panels. Um, there she is sitting on the edge of the pool, surrounded, slightly off-center, and surrounded by an empty landscape, which I think highlights her anxiety, followed by the chaos of risk as she jumps into the pool, and then ending on, uh, in the final panel on her emerging victorious, surrounded by her fellow campers. Jake and I thought a lot about this final, or what we call the landing panel in each comic. Um, and it occurred to me that, in some cases, that final panel um, takes the form of a happy ending, as is the case here. Um, and in some cases, it may hint at further developments to come. And sometimes it's a little more ambiguous, as is the case, I think, with the next comic. Um, in this uh, episode, uh, the family in the northern part of the state had received a death threat. Um, and uh, they were terrified, so much so that they felt forced to flee their home. And they were living in a uh, hotel uh, nearby for several weeks, right? Uh, over yeah, a month? Yeah. And the, uh, the, the father in the family had recently found a job working as a dishwasher at a local friendlies. And one night he comes home late. And this causes the wife a lot of anxiety. And she recalls the experience when they were back in Syria when the family was separated and the, um, her husband had been taken to a detention center for a while. So as Jake very eloquently mentioned to me um, at the time that I was working on this, uh, the trauma of the present for the wife brings up the trauma of the past. Um, I'd like you to take a look at the final panel. Again, this was a sketch I submitted for approval, and Jake looked at it and said, it looks good, but maybe we could make a change with the final panel. Rather than having it end as a happy ending, as is the case here, the husband and wife are asleep, it's the middle of the night, all is well. Um, maybe we could make a change. So please continue looking at the final panel, and you'll see that in the, the final version, the uh, husband and wife, have, their positions in bed have been switched. The wife is wide awake, uh, still filled with anxiety and finding no solace at all in sleep. Uh, one last episode I'd like to show to you. Uh, again, this was a, um, a situation where I read Jake's script, and even before I started sketching, I knew how this particular panel was going to look in my mind, um, and it was going to be a very strong image. Uh, after this family that had fled their home because of the death threat um, had been living in a hotel for a while, they finally got a lead on a new home. And they um, found this home in, um, in the house that belonged to a Vietnamese American who himself had been a refugee from Vietnam and had moved to this country in the 1970s. Yeah. And he um, heard about the experience of the, of the family and it made him recall um, his own flight from Vietnam when he was 12 
or so, arriving in this country and um, seeing snow for the first time. And that's the pen in the context of the rest of the episode. All right. If I could uh, say something, I, I think we want to open up for questions at some point, but while this series was running and humanizing refugees, which is really in the end why I decided to go along with it, you know, we, we, we need to do whatever we can to humanize refugees, to introduce them to people, to, to have art exhibits, films, videos, graphic novel style strips, while refugees were being humanized on the page of the Week in Review section of the Sunday New York Times, remember what was happening in this country. We had a president who was vilifying them, dehumanizing them, trying to keep as many out of the country as he possibly could. We had these two forces working in opposite directions. We know which force is going to win out in the end, but it's been a difficult time for us. And we probably shouldn't complete this event tonight without mentioning the horrible tragedy in Pittsburgh. The shooter in Pittsburgh killed people because they were Jews and because they believed in resettling refugees. They were killed for doing the oldest, most noble, most humanitarian tradition this country has. So we need to think about that and decide how we're going to dedicate our lives going forward. So th this comic strip has been great. And you guys are turning it into a, oh, sorry. You're turning it into a book? <laughs> You're turning it into a book, I hear. We are. Um, yeah, we're working on it now. Um, and hopefully nine months, 12 months from now, we'll, we'll be done. We're, we're expanding the narrative greatly. Um, because we've been, we've, you know, been watching these families for the better part of two years. Hmm. It's amazing. It's going to be two years, just in a, a few weeks. On Tuesday. Um, yeah. 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 Um, maybe now we'll open up to questions if people have them. I don't, do, I don't know how you want to run the format, but. Sure. Chairs. Actually, I, I kind of, I kind of can't help myself as the journalist here. I, I have to maybe ask the first question which is to Amina and Isa. <laughs> so when I showed up at your house, when I arrived at your house yeah. the first day, like, what did you think? Like, <laughs> did you think like, uh, were, did you trust me? Or did you think, that, did you know what this was gonna be? We never really talked about this, but what was your feeling about whether or not to do this or not? Something, you know, when we came here, it's many feelings we have. Something hope, something uh, thinking about the future. But we trust you. We trust Chris also. We trust uh, Jika when they come. We know these people will will help. They will. They like to help us. Like uh, they don't will make anything like terrible thing for us. We believe that. We believe people. This is uh, why I agree for you when you ask me. You didn't think it was a crazy idea to do a comic strip about your family? It's new for me, it's new to speak with journalists. We have journalists there, but you know how the journalists there is different from here. Yeah. We have journalists, but they, have, they don't have freedom. You know, if someone says something bad about the government, 
keep it close. I have another, one more question for, for both of you. Um, in those early days when you came here, we were talking about this when everyone was coming in earlier tonight. Those were very hard first days, not only because of the Trump becoming president, but because, Issa, you were in a lot of pain from your back. I remember you didn't have a car and you were walking um, quite some distance to the stop and shop and carrying the groceries and being in such pain that you were, you couldn't sleep in the bed at night. You had to sleep on the floor. And Amin, I know you were worried about your family back home. You didn't speak English. You didn't really know anyone other. And it was, it was re I mean, I, I could feel how hard that was for you. And I just wondered, like, what did you do to keep your spirits up? Because you always seem to manage to, I don't know, put a positive face on it. You always... You never really complained. You just, and I'm wondering, like, how did you do it? What did you? Yeah. For me, for me, three months, I am very worried about no English. I didn't understand any people when she come come to my house and speak with Isa about my family and they will help us. I didn't understand. Just go kitchen and cry. And Isa told me, I remember this, and he told me, Amina, you need like the life go on and no make us feeling sad, just learn English. And it makes you very strong. <laughs> yeah, and learn every day, I learn English. I have a group, Shikari group, this now same my family is a group. I didn't tell them a group. This here is my family. Yeah, they help me a lot. They give me teacher. She helped me every week, one hour, uh, learning English. Hmm. Yeah, she's a Christian woman. And always I say for her, thank you very much. She helped me. Yeah, and thank you for my group also and I Yeah, but I make strong because I see my family. I see my children because my son always be sad. I'm looking for him. If you see me sad, and Issa sad me, make for him problem. I didn't. I came here for make him happy. I make for him stay. I didn't make him sad and they because I grow. The most important word, yeah. perhaps, though. Before I came here, I heard about my friends that came before us. They say, if you speak English, this is the best key to life in this country. So I have like some English beginning, and I study also by myself before I came. This is helped me, and help my family also when we go to shopping. If someone, if one in the family can speak, um, he can help the family. Then I told her, if you learn English, your life will be much different. And she feels that now. She feels that. Yeah. I don't know if you mentioned that you changed everyone's names in the in in, in the strip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you didn't write anything to identify um, 
the location, not even the state. Yeah, it's true. That must have been so hard not to, not to, to talk about the great nutmeg state of Connecticut <laughs> in, in the comic strip. Yeah, but we were very concerned at the start about not giving away too much information. And I remember talking about that and actually... This is my opinion uh, about Yeah, it was... I mean, I remember having a conversation with Issa where you said, will Trump come after us? And I was about to say, no, no, no. And I said, I think it's fine. Um, because we protected your identity enough that you were safe. But I paused, and I was surprised to hear myself pause. Yeah, we were having town hall meetings with uh, refugees um, at the IRIS office. They had questions like, are we going to be rounded up and deported? And uh, like Jake, I, I couldn't promise 100% anything. I said, I, I don't think that would ever happen. And if anyone tries to do that, there will be a lot of people, including <laughs> most of the people in this room, who will stand with you mm. and, and protect you. Uh, but it's been a, been a very difficult time. You said it came, yeah, the first um, um, strip came out in January. It came out exactly yeah. when the refugee ban. When the re yeah, that was almost to the day. It was. That the first Muslim ban was issued. I think that's why the Times, are, yeah, ended up getting behind it. I, mm -hmm. I want to point one other thing about this anonymity and also about Amina and Issa. Um, we were very careful at the start about trying to protect so they would not be visible. And it was true. I remember, Amina, you were sad in the beginning. And I think you could see that you were a little lost. But I have to say, this woman has created an amazingly successful catering business. She, her face is blown up on a giant poster in downtown New Haven. And she was serving the food beneath it. And you're just a confident, successful, beautiful person. And you have succeeded in this country in ways that are a great reminder to us all that this is what a refugee looks like. Clearly, Sanctuary Kitchen. It's an amazing program. It's a project of City Seed, and it has done remarkable things working with refugee, mainly refugee, uh, mainly women, but men and women, helping them develop their cooking and, uh, and make money and start businesses in the process. It's a great project.
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a fine line between advocacy and propaganda, and cartoons have a dark history of propaganda, particularly in the Third Reich. So I think you have to be very honest with yourself about our goal is to humanize the people that we're writing about, but humanizing doesn't mean turning them into saints or angels or, and making everything into a black and white morality play. It means trying to show people with their flaws and everything, just human beings, and trusting that that will be the most persuasive way to win people over. But it also requires that the people that you're talking to are being honest with you and are not, we all do this, right? Someone says, oh, where'd you grow up or what's your story? And we give our best version of who we are. We all do it. We sanitize to various degrees how we've gotten to where we are. And as a journalist, you have to be somewhat adept, hopefully pretty good, pretty adept, at seeing through that and picking up on when that's happening. And I felt that from the very start that these were two families that were being honest with me and sharing. One small example of this, which is going to be in the book, it's not in the comic, Isa and his brother Ibrahim were in a very difficult situation that some of the members of their family got visas to come to the U.S. and some did not. And they have family that is still in Jordan and family that's in Syria. So right before election day, they had to make this decision of whether or not to come. And in the other family, Ibrahim, his brother, had a teenage son, Naji. And Naji who had lived through the siege of homes, had been running around on the streets of homes, dodging bullets to buy bread for his mom and his sisters, pulling power lines off the, and stripping out the copper innards and selling them to make ends meet in homes. His attitude to his dad was, we've got a chance to go to America. We're crazy if we don't go. We've got to go, dad. And he was pestering his dad. I've got an 11-year-old, so I have some sense of what that might be like, but it was America, America, America. And Ibrahim told me in front of Naji, he said he persisted so often and he was so tuned out to the fact that I was leaving my mother behind that sometimes I felt as if I hated my own son. And I was, it was a moment that, like, as a journalist that you're attuned to because it wasn't the sanitized version. Mm. And I turned to Naji and I said to him, did you know that? And he said, I knew, but I felt that I couldn't relent because I knew we had to leave. And you have these moments where when people let you in and they're telling you the parts of the story that don't always reflect perfectly on them, that it builds your sense of trust. And in fact, those are the parts of the story that actually make you care the most because we identify those flaws and those moments as human because we understand implicitly that we have those same fights and those same pettinesses and conflicts within our own family. So for me, journalistically, the key was to continually avoid this temptation of turning them into some sort of like, you know, two-dimensional angelic refugees and try to show them as people, but they greatly assisted me in doing that because they were honest with me. And that honesty was really, more than anything, the, the, the core to the, the, the journalistic success of the story. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, we knew that we would have to be honest, too. Refugee resettlement is pretty messy. It's not all terrific, it's not all successes. <laughs> not for us, the Refugee Resettlement Agency, and not for the community group, this band of semi-retired, uh, you know, compassionate do-gooders uh, who get some great training from us, but, you know, we make mistakes, they make mistakes, but I trust journalists. My dad was a journalist, my daughter's a journalist, and I knew these guys were great journalists, and if we just open up completely, Trust the process, that's what will make for a successful story. And that was true, by the way. I can say when the FBI, when the death threat happened and the FBI got involved, and there was, I think I'm not spilling the beans here, there was tension between you and, um, and Ibrahim's family as they were, how could there not be? Where they move, where would they go? And Chris, you did not spin it for me. Like he did not, he did not put me in the un uncomfortable situation of having to like basically 
called Paul bullshit dig. on yeah. him. I mean, he, he said, here's the deal. And I respected you for that. And you were well served by that. And it's stupid when people try to spin because it's just like a red flag of, of, of you know, there's, this is not the whole story. Um, I wanted to re respond to your question about it appearing on the Sunday Review opinion pages and, and whether it had a point of view or not. Um, the comic was driven by Jake's text, and so he did a wonderful job of presenting things in such a way so that I was essentially just interpreting what he had already written. Um, I didn't have much time to think about it in the beginning because we were working so hard to get this thing off the ground and the deadlines were so tight and there was so much work involved. Um, only later on, um, after maybe a few episodes had been published when perhaps somebody asked me um, what you're asking me now, did I stop to consider? I think the comic projects certain values and there are values that are important to me. There are compassion, understanding, tolerance, um, projecting the humanity of the family in, in the hopes that readers of the comic will um, discover some of their own humanity in response. Uh, that's, that's how I feel about it now. But was it ever a difficult um, thing for me or a balancing act? No, I was really responding to Jake's text and the story and the families um, in a very intuitive way, um, which is how I respond to all my illustration assignments. I don't think intellectually about them. Um, it's only later when I when I'm posed a question like that that I have to make that mental shift. Yes? Me personally, I didn't um, spend much time with the family. Jake uh, spent uh, uh, time every week, sometimes more than once a week. I guess we figured out pretty early on it wasn't necessary for me to be there during the interviews. But you um, were there, just to be clear, Michael was there when they landed, and yeah. then also yeah, Chris yeah. runs, uh, the Iris runs this um, core program, which is kind of Welcome to America, oh, that's right. Right. And, and Chris okay. can tell you about that, Cultural and you were there. Orientation. Michael was, that was several days, and Michael came to that as well. Right. Yeah, I remember that. I, did, I brought my sketchbook, and I was yeah. sketching, um, yeah. I sketched Najee. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I wasn't trying to make the characters in the comic look like um, they actually are. In fact, I think that was part of trying to hide their identity to keep their lives private. They shouldn't look too much the way they actually do. Um, <laughs> You're much more beautiful and much more handsome. <laughs> than the um, I would, I would meet, I would see them maybe once every few months. add to sorry that if you would like to see Amina <coughs> cook in person she's doing this at our neighbor's house on Saturday she's giving cooking lessons to a group of people who are interested in her food 
They're going to make a meal together. She's going to show them how to cook Syrian food, and they're going to enjoy the food together. And you can contact them, and they'll set that up, and her charming self will be at your house. Yeah. yeah but you do have a card out there, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, don't forget to pick that up. Um, it's definitely my style. Um, I think the story has certainly influenced my style. I think a lot of it is also my intuitive reaction to Jake's script. Um, and uh, certain panels just seem to require a more dramatic treatment of light. Um, some panels require more space uh, where there is less inking and, and less color. Um, it's very hard for me to describe to you on a panel-per-panel -panel basis why that's the case. Um, it's just something that happens because of the filter of my experience doing this kind of work for nearly 30 years. Um, I hope that, I hope that yeah, answers your question. Okay, well, that, well this one, um, I'll talk about this one briefly. The, the, about two-thirds of the way through the project with the Times, maybe in August um, 2017, the Times um, so that they wanted to uh, archive. They, there was already an existing archive of the comic as it was published. They wanted to put them together in a um, some more elaborately um, designed way. And the designer who I was working with asked me if I would create a, a, a sort of a frontispiece or a cover that would appear at the top of the comic. If you see it on the Times website, you can scroll through all the comics, um, I think panel by panel or, or episode to episode. And this is at the top. I think the designer said um, that she noticed this um, particular image, was, which was actually quite small in the first episode, which was 24 panels. It was um, one of the panels was divided into two tiny panels, and this was one of the tiny panels. And I think she suggested using that as a jumping point for this cover image. So I redrew it, and um, it was a nighttime scene. They arrived at night. I mean, I don't know if the moon was shining that night or not. I actually think it was cloudy. But it just seemed to require this kind of dramatic treatment. Um, that's, that's, um, that's how that came about. What's that? Maybe it will be. <laughs> oh my god. I didn't, I didn't hear that. How will we feel when we get the call for our second Pulitzer Prize? <laughs> Um, this was so uh, much of a surprise to me. We, we had gone through a submission process, but I've gone through processes of trying to submit work for competitions before that have awards, and sometimes it'll get into the competition. But I, I, this, this was not in my radar. In fact, I had forgotten when the, um, when the actual announcement would be I made. Hadn't. Um, well, that, that's the other thing. I mean, I, I, of course, had heard of the Pulitzer, but I always considered it to be a, a journalism award, which it is, although they also give awards to theater and, and theater and music and to editorial cartoonists like Gary Trudeau and Jules Pfeiffer, um, but not, not to people who do the kind of work I do, right? Um, so I still have to kick myself um, when I realize that, 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 that we've won this Pulitzer. Um, the idea of, of, of anything else that might come from it down the line, like a second Pulitzer, is just, I, 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 can't, I can't go there. <laughs> yes, in the corner. Personally, for me, no. Um, it, it's, it's funny, um, but that never came up, and I think part of it was because um, there wasn't time to think about it. Um, part of it was because for me, doing the artwork, it just came so naturally, um, which is really a product of, of working with Jake and, and his script. Um, when, when, were there any times? I mean, I, I felt like I had to pay particular attention to 
um, the headdress, the, uh, um, the hijab, the hijab that, yeah. that, um, that, that women wear in the strip to, to get it right. Um, well, how about you? Um, no, I think my biggest anxiety was that I was going to find some terrible secret about the family and that I was going to then put me in a situation of being they weren't the people that I thought they were. I mean, this is the fear you always have as a journalist, right? That would then make you feel like, oh, you wanted to pick them good, but, but you can't. But they ended up being good people. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, the other worry that I had was that, um, well, I've talked about how I worried that they wouldn't trust me. And then once they did have the trust, I worried that they might somehow at some point not like something that I did. That's why I kept on always trying to fact check it with it to make sure that it was all right. Um, I had one really powerful moment where I went to the mosque with, with Isa. Do you remember it's the mosque out in that little strip mall out in the Boston Post Road? And I went out with him. It, it looked like it might be in like an old TJ Maxx building. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's in orange. Okay. So you go out there, and there's like a little, there's like a little market there where it's like a little like strip mall where there's like a little grocery store and pet like store, pet store, mosque, mosque. But it's all and it's all like it's only all, in America. Yeah, and it's all Arabic. And I remember the the person showing you being like, "This is your new life." And I'm just thinking, like, oh my God, this guy comes from like the cradle of civilization. <laughs> you can't be telling him his new life is on a strip mall, not even like on the same part as the Best Buy, like behind the Best Buy. Um, so we went into the mosque, and Ibrahim um, went to pray. There was an and uh, Isa went to pray, and there was maybe like eight or nine people, well, not many. And they went to pray, and I kind of, they were very welcoming to me, but I kind of sat in the back and just watched them pray. And they were so small, is what I just felt. I felt like their smallness at that moment. Just nine people in like an old TJ Maxx on the strip mall on the Boston Post Road, like having their little, like tiny, modest moment of prayer. And I got this goosebump moment that I felt like I could have seen my own family on the steps of Europe in some bratty old synagogue, just praying with like nothing. And it was just this rare moment of transcendence where you realize that like, we have so much more connectivity than we realize. And that like, their family could be my family. And I'll tell you one other story, I've never told you this before, but I'll share it with you. I had a relative in my family yes, I will confess, who is, a, who is a Trump supporter and who wasn't entirely, not a close member. You'll never meet them, don't worry. <laughs> Trust me. Um, and basically like, thought that Trump was great because he was going to do good by Israel, okay? And expressed his like, not total happiness with the comic that I was doing. And it's whatever, ignorance, right? And then I thought, to, I thought of him immediately after the shooting in Pittsburgh. And I thought, and I, I brought this, and I want to share this, because I just feel like it's, an, it's a quote, and I'm sure you all know it, but it, it's one that, that bears rereading. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I feel such antipathy towards this relative who had such a cowardly and short-sighted view that must not be us. I want to go back to your question one more time. I think a real milestone for me was that night, election eve, when we, um, the three of us, witnessed the families arriving in the vans from the airport. 
And I had a, there were a lot of times during this project, there continue to be time, times as we work in the book when I have a very strong emotional reaction. And seeing the families come out of the vans and seeing the children who are beautiful, the children are really very beautiful. Um, I, I remember mentioning to Jake that it felt like I was witnessing a birth. But I also, um, uh, connected with it because I have, my wife and I have three children and we've traveled back and forth to China quite frequently. And I know what the feeling is like of traveling with, with young children um, long distances. Had you ever been on an airplane before uh, that, that trip? Had your children been on an airplane? No. Um, just being on a long trip like that with children is exhausting, um, let alone um, leaving your life um, behind and going to this new place where you'd never been before. Um, I'd never experienced that before, but I knew something about traveling with children, and I, I connected with, with the family that way. So I was connecting to them uh, um, as a human being to other human beings, not as a, um, an American or whatever I am uh, to, to, to Syrians. It was just one human being to other human beings. This comic strip is a, it's a marriage of a great American tradition and great journalism. Uh, and boy, do we need great journalists nowadays. In fact, I think the I think teachers probably have the most important job in the world, but right after them, now, at this time, it's journalists. And uh, if there are any more children left in the audience, think about going into journalism. <laughs> it is one of the most, right after teaching, the most honorable profession. Uh, and I'm going to put it even above refugee resettlement for, for now. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, so, you know, please consider it. And these guys have really done an amazing job telling this incredible story about these incredible people. So thank you. Thank you.